We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Murphy. Uh, joining me, of course, is Ricky D. And we are here today to talk about Parasite for our very first episode of sort of the reboot of the Sword Cinema Podcast, um, Gumasop's film podcast. We're bringing it back. And today we're talking about Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho and written by Bong Joon-ho and Jin Wan-han. It is the story of a sort of a down-in-your-luck family who takes jobs with a rich family by conniving their way into the household, lying, stealing, cheating, and getting rich. <laughs> Damn it, I hate that summary. That that pretty much uh, sums it up, though. I mean, I mean, I, I think, like, I would like to think that anyone who's listening to this podcast has watched a movie. And if not, I think you should watch the movie prior to listening to us talk about it because we're going to really go into detailed so in other words we're going to spoil the movie absolutely uh and there's a lot to spoil in this movie but before we get into that let's let's talk about a little bit about what this our podcast is because uh parasite is kind of maybe not emblematic of what we're going to do with the new sword cinema podcast but it also sort of is um rick why don't you sort of explain what the new sword cinema podcast is all about yeah so we actually have recorded over 500 episodes of the Sword of Cinema slash Sound Inside podcast. We've been recording since about 2007. We took a break. We came back. We recorded a few more episodes. I think it's 515 episodes in total. And I stepped away from podcasting for a while, but I really missed it, so I wanted to bring it back. But if you are familiar with our podcast and you've listened to us in the past, this new reboot of the podcast is going to be somewhat different. We're going to be speaking mostly about older films every so often we'll talk about a newer film but the idea is that we really don't want to rush to a cinema watch a movie have a knee-jerk reaction come on the podcast give our first impressions and not really digest the movie like one of the problems with the old format was we would often review like two three four movies in one week two of which were new and it was a lot to deal with. Like we just didn't have enough time to digest the movies. Also, this is not really going to be so much a review show. It's more of a discussion and we will bring on guests every so often, hopefully every week, but we're, we're really just going to talk about the movies and talk about why we love these movies. These are movies that we choose because we love each month. I will choose two movies each month. Patrick will choose two movies. Hopefully we will like all the movies. I can't promise that we will like all the movies. But the, <laughs> the point is, is that I don't want it to be one of those podcasts where you have a bunch of guys that just complain for like 60 minutes about what it is that they don't like about a movie. Like if we don't like a movie, we're just not going to review it because nobody really wants to listen to two guys complain for 60 minutes. But the, the thing that excites me about this podcast, Patrick, is 
it's the idea that I get to choose two movies and you choose two movies, so I'm not in full control. And I like I watch a lot of movies, but I go through like a phase where you know, like when I was in college, I watch a lot of like French New Wave films, and then later on in life, I watch a lot of Italian cinema from the '60s and '70s. Or I went through a phase where I watched like every Brian De Palma, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola films. Or I watched like every black exploitation film in, a, in, in like, in like a month, you know what I mean? But with, yeah. with you choosing movies, like, I think you're going to not motivate me, but force me to watch things that I might not have watched and vice versa. So I'm hoping that I can discover some gems and you can discover movies that you might not have seen. If not for me recommending them. I think that's going to happen a lot. And I think one of those is parasite as a matter of fact, um, because I had not seen this movie until we were starting on, Till we revive the podcast uh, and with you picking it it is you know it's the first time i've seen this movie now granted it is in, still in theater so it is a new movie uh so a lot of people out there may not have seen it um but i think that's going to happen quite a bit i think you've probably seen way i'm not probably you have seen way more movies than i have even though we both love movies and and i tend to um Rewatch things several times. So if I find something I like, I watch it a lot. I'm not a one-time watcher. I, I absolutely I rewatch everything that I love. So the movies I'll be picking, you can count on the fact that I've probably seen them over, probably over ten times for each one of these movies. Um, and they're going to be favorites. Yeah, for sure. The same goes for me. Like I've actually watched Parasite twice. I really. Love the movie. I'm a big fan of the director, and I've been a fan of the director ever since he released his second film, Memories of Murder, which is still, in my opinion, his best film, but Parasite is a close second. Okay. Well, with that said, we can launch into this new Sword and Cinema podcast, but first, let's play a clip from Parasite. That was a clip from Parasite. So, Rick, the first question is, why did you choose this movie? So, as I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of the filmmaker. I love genre films. And I hate using the word genre because, let's face it, like even a drama or a comedy is a genre. But usually when someone uses the word genre, they're referring to movies that are, are you know, horror films, thrillers, cult films, what have you. The thing about Parasite is... It's a home invasion movie, but it's constructed like a heist film. And at times, it's like a horror film. It's a thriller. It's a dark comedy. It's a drama. I think it's brilliant. Like, I really, really do love this movie. And I've watched it twice, and I liked it a lot more on my second viewing. In fact, the first time I watched it, I had, like, an hour-long conversation with, with our good friend Simon Howell about my problems with the ending of the film and then watching it a second time there's a lot of things that i picked up on that i didn't notice on the first watch 
And I just love the movie so much more on a second viewing. And that that's like, again, the point of this podcast. It's to really try to like digest these movies because sure, not all movies are good. You know, there is, I think, bad movies. Like movies are just incredibly bad. But usually when you watch a movie and you, you see these filmmakers pour their hearts and there's so much passion and it comes through every frame of the movie like even if you don't really like the movie like it's not your thing you can still appreciate what the director and the writer and a cinematographer and the editor you know did like the hard work they put into making these movies there's always i think something to learn from watching a movie no matter how bad it is um and <laughs> and i think i think the thing about parasite is and we're going to get into this later on in the show when we talk about what the best scene is and how many great scenes are in this movie but there are so many scenes in this movie that just kind of like blew me away especially on a second viewing now the interesting thing about this film is like even like the opening shot it establishes this family who lives in this rundown apartment complex in sort of like below ground below ground yeah like a like a basement apartment semi below ground like there's just enough light to look into the street but you're looking Mm -hmm. into like a dirty grungy street where like homeless people walk by and piss on your like front window and (laughs) there you know the movie's called parasite and it opens with the family trying to leech the wi-fi from their neighbors and there's bugs running around the entire apartment and the whole place is infested. And at one point, there's a man who walks by and he's fumigating the neighborhood. And they, the, the, the dad, he decides to leave the windows open because in doing so, they basically have this man, this exterminator working for them for free because they're, he, he is fumigating their apartment. Like they're so... They're so poor and they are financially struggling that they will sit there and consume the fumes in order to hopefully kill off the bugs that are crawling on their floor. It's just a great way to open up a movie and establish who these characters are and what their major problem is before we jump into the plot, which is the the son, his best friend who's wealthier, he's in college, you know, he's... He's ambitious. He has like, I, I would I would assume a good future. He's most likely going to get a job. He already has a good job. He's uh, he's going away. He's going to study abroad, and he's tutoring the daughter of this rich family at the parks, and he wants someone to take his place, but he doesn't want it to be someone he doesn't know, and he doesn't want to ask any of his college buddies. Because he likes the girl and he's afraid that if someone steps in and takes over as her tutor, that she might fall in love with whoever that is and he would therefore not have a a future relationship with this girl. So he asks his friend Kevin, who's the young son of the family, and I I would say the protagonist of the film, if he can step in and become the tutor. And he does. And so he goes to the quote-unquote job interview and he gets hired to work for the Park family. Uh, before you cut in, we should just quickly, for the listeners, let's let's just, for the listeners, let's just establish who these characters are because this is a Korean film and the names can be complicated. So the, the, the family of four, the original family that we meet, 
uh, the dad, who, by the way, is played by the actor who's in every single one of the director's films, his name is Kai Tech. His son, to simplify things, we're going to go by his American alias, which is Kevin. There's Chun Suk, the wife, Ki Jung, the daughter. Then we have the Park family, Mr. Park, Mrs. Park, the, the daughter, Da Hai, and the son. Yep, Da Hai. The, the son's name the, is the song the song the song so it's gonna get a little complicated we'll try our best so everyone can follow along yeah and i also want to remind listeners this is a going to be a spoiler cast uh, pretty much everything we do we're gonna feel free to talk about spoilers so if you have not seen this movie and don't want anything spoiled you can obviously turn it off now but uh, we're we want to be able to discuss this movie freely so we'll be talking spoilers right so my question to you before we get into like the themes and the plot and the plot twist and the ending especially. Have you seen any of his previous films? I saw Snowpiercer. Okay. His worst film. And that's that's the only Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean I, I like Snowpiercer, but like I think most it's people fine. will agree. It was, it was okay. Yeah. It's, it's... Yeah. It, it was it was all right. It wasn't anything I thought was it didn't blow my mind or anything like that. I love the premise. I just didn't uh, you know think that the the final product blew my mind, but it wasn't bad. I watched the whole thing. And you know, sometimes that says something. Um, yeah, so that's the only film of his I have seen. I have not seen Okja, um, and I know he did, um, oh my god, that horror movie that everybody was talking about for so long. Mother? The one with, what's that? Uh, Mother and also... The um, Host? The Host, yes. Yeah, and he did Memories of Murder, which is, Memories of Murder is, for me, it's on the same level as David Fincher's Zodiac. It's, it's incredible. But, but the thing about his movies is... There, thematically, a lot of his, of his films link to one another, but he also does these things like he uses like usually the same editor, the same composer, the same production designer, the same cinematographer, and the same actor. And all of his films begin and end in the exact same place or kind of like end with the very first shot. And mm-hmm. you see this here again with Parasite. So there's a lot of parallels between his films. The thing about Parasite is it cannot be confined to like a single genre, which is, I think, why I nope. really, really like it. But it changes genres uh, sure. about halfway through, I would say. <laughs> yeah, but but I it really does center its focus on class struggle, and yes. that, that's something you see in a lot of his previous films, especially a film like Snowpiercer. Yeah, I was going to say that's the big parallel for me is that uh, they were both about the haves and the have-nots, and about the have-nots kind of trying to get what the haves have. <laughs> um, but in, a, in Snowpiercer, it was definitely a more straightforward way. And in Parasite here, it's, it is a sneakier way. It is sort of, as the title implies, uh, these people sort of latching on to an unsuspecting host. Um, not without, without the host really knowing that they're being sucked dry. Not, not sucked dry, but, but, you know, being bled a little bit, fed off of, I should say. There we go. Yeah, see, he has, like, this thematic obsession of class division, social dysfunction, and it's themes and things that he explores in a lot of his films. And, of course, there's a lot of twists and turns. And I would say that the movie really takes off about 40 minutes in, I would say. So, essentially, throughout the film, Kevin gets a job. He becomes a tutor. And then he... What he tries to do is he tries to find a way to have his family employed by the parks because his parents are currently unemployed. His his sister does have a job, though. She has a job. 
And she has Photoshop skills, as we quickly learned. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very good ones. By the way, her sister, the, uh, his sister, uh, to me was the most mysterious and funny character in the entire in the entire story. I just want to say that we'll come back to her, but I I think with later on with some of our our, our questions that we're going to answer at the end of this uh, podcast. But man, I loved his sister. She was uh, she was hilarious to me. Yeah, for sure. So the thing is, for him to get his sister a job, he goes in to tutor the parks uh, the daughter of the parks whose name is da song da oh, no, uh, sorry da high <laughs> da high it's gonna be so confusing and um the wife mrs park starts talking about her younger son and how he you know likes to paint he's like this future brilliant artist and you know she really believes a sad, yeah a satire of how rich people believe their kids are so special exactly yeah and i love that i love that i love how they're staring yep. at the painting and for her it's like it's like a Picasso painting, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a kid's drawing that I'll, I'll admit was not bad for a kid of his age, but at the same time, they're staring at it as if it had some deeper meaning, if, as if this kid was an artistic genius. Yeah, and so and so that that's where I bring up the comparison to like a heist film, because then he has to come up with this master plan of finding a way to have his sister hired as the tutor of the little boy, the son, and mm-hmm. also not just like his his his, his uh, art teacher but an art therapist and they they go to like such extremes that you know because she has skills in photoshop she actually creates a fake cv for him and i believe a fake certificate and uh she herself has like a fake business card and she pretends that she lived in the united states like she actually if i'm not mistaken she pretends that she actually was born and or at least was raised in the united states because in korea if you're from america you can get a job teaching no problem you can get paid really well like they really really want americans if you have and the the more american you look like if you have blonde hair and blue eyes you will for sure get a job and they will pay you big bucks to tutor their children and so in the movie she actually goes she she goes so far as to say that she was raised in the united states of america and and for mrs parks who let's face it she's kind of like really naive she has no idea what's going on in the world right she's <laughs> simple as uh, as kevin's friend describes her <laughs> yeah so she, she'll just believe whatever it is that they say because they were technically recommended by kevin's best friend right so he was already mm-hmm. working for for the parks he was the original tutor and so for them it's like if you're recommended then we're just gonna you know believe everything you say because you came recommended so therefore we can trust you i think i think we should say that the parks live in a bubble and that's kind of the point he's uh bong joon ho is showing that this family lives in such a bubble that they will believe they can't conceive that these people would deceive them in this way um, so yeah, I mean, she's, she's simple and she's gullible, not because she's necessarily stupid, but because of the bubble that they live in. I don't know if you picked up on this, but th- there's clearly a doppelganger theme here. Like the two families are so similar. They're not just because they're a family of four. There's a mom, dad, the son, and, and the daughter, but like the movie itself is called Parasite, but every single character in this film acts like a parasite, right? And and I couldn't help but think of Jordan Peele's Us, which was also released in 2019, because in that movie, you have a family of four who are doppelgangers, but both families live sort of like on the opposite 
ends of of like the like the class divide, right? So like in this case, the Kims are extremely poor and the Parks are extremely wealthy, much like the two families in Jordan Peele's Us. Now for me, for my money, I think Parasite is a far superior film than Jordan Peele's Us. But what's interesting about Us is like reflecting back on Us, and we did a podcast about that movie. The, the thing about that film is it's so supernatural, right? And when it gets to the end, there's this entire sequence where the main character actually, or the doppelganger actually explains the plot of the film. And in Parasite, everything's very subtle. And although it's a, it, you sort of have to suspend your disbelief while watching Parasite because, you know, let's face it, like the odds of this family actually pulling off the scam and getting all four members of the family hired by the parks without the parks actually noticing that they're all related and at all the madness that ensues throughout the film, especially towards the climax and the midway point of the film. And just the idea of someone living in the bunker in the basement for four years, you have to sort of like suspend your disbelief. That said, it's still grounded in reality because stranger things have happened in real life. And I can actually see people pulling off this sort of scam. You know, I think, uh... <sighs> I think that the first half of the movie is definitely grounded in reality. I do think that the screenplay takes a, a leap at about that 40, 45 minute, maybe 50 minute mark um, that it's a leap of logic that either you're going to roll with or it might take you out of it a bit because it is unrealistic human behavior. Uh, there's just one little thing. It, it is when Chung Sook lets the former housekeeper, the housekeeper that they framed and got fired so that Chung Sook could move in, uh, you know, Kevin's mother and take over. But when Chung Sook lets the former housekeeper back in, I, I will admit that that took me out of the scenario quite a bit. Cause I was really, really absorbed in the first half of Parasite. I do think it's fairly realistic, even if it has that satire bent to it. And yes, of course, it's, you know, odds are they would, they would know that this was family, but there's a little bit of dark comedy going on here in satire the situation however that was a leap of logic that i i didn't think that the, the character would actually have done letting this person back in when your 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 family is drunk they're vulnerable they're all there this is the one person this is a person who would have a motivation to actually uh rat you out and you let them in the house and i thought that was a big mistake there there could have been other things that other ways for that character to get back inside the house, like she could have had a key that she had kept or something like that, you know? Um, that is the moment of the film in which it really starts to turn into like a horror film, like that specific yep. 50 minute sequence, the fact that it's raining outside, the fact that she shows up at the doorstep, much like a home invasion film where someone's ringing at the door and it's and really the creepy. camera. Her face in the camera is great. It's such a great shot. Like it's it's so creepy, and you know something bad is coming from this. You just know it. Um, yeah, it's all done very well. It's all done very well. I just wish that he had that the the, the the writers you know had just given a different reason as opposed to just letting her in. Because I thought there's no way you let her in. Not not in that scenario. Not when your whole family is drunk there and she could rat you all out. Yeah, I mean it's hard to say. Like I've never been in that kind of situation, but it, it is. And we're going to talk about our favorite scenes later on, but I think it's one of my favorite scenes, even if, like, again, you have to suspend your disbelief. But it has more to do with, like you said, the camera shots, the framing, yeah. the cinematography, um, the fact that it's one of the darkest scenes in a movie. Um, I really do love the composer, and I 
can't remember how to pronounce his name, so I apologize. But he does such a great job in in building the tempo and really creating that suspense and dread. Because and the thing about the film, it's like again, there are times like I would never say that the film is laugh out loud funny, but there are moments where twice. Two Twice, shots it was yeah. for me. <laughs> but you will smile watching a film. Like, it's one of those movies that could be sort of, like, funny and pleasant, but also dark and twisted. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about the cinematography and, and I guess, the production design. I I was listening to some interviews with the director, and I, I did not realize this, that they actually built the set. So it's not an actual, yeah. like, real house, which is fantastic. No, it's, and it's an amazing house. The house is a character in this movie. There's no question about that. It's an absolutely amazing house, and I, I listened to a little, or I didn't listen to this, but I read a little bit about this as well, about how they were talking about it. They, they weren't, the production designer wasn't really sure how an architect would design a house, and this house was supposed to be owned, formally owned by an architect, which is why there's a, um, you know, a secret, um, not a bomb shelter, it's like a, it, it's like a panic room almost, but there's a secret uh, bunker. Well, it, it's a bunker, the but the, the, the reason yeah. why the architect created the bunker is because he was afraid that there would be a nuclear war and North Korea would bomb South right. Korea. Right. Oh, well, they also explained that it could be to avoid tax people. <laughs> 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 For rich people to avoid uh, <laughs> get out of their financial duties. Um, so, yeah, she the, the production designer was saying how... Um, well, they didn't really know how an architect would design a house because, of course, they had to design the house for the blocking and for the lighting and, you know, for the, the, the camera movements. For sure. Um, but this house looks real to me. and They did a fantastic job with it. Wait, and that's what I like. I like the structure of the film. And it has a lot to do with the, the compositions of the shots, the framing again, the camera movement. Um, but he uses this reoccurring motif of staircases. And yes. yeah, so it's like the staircases represent the visions of class and power. And the Park family lives at the top of the hill, so they can oversee the entire city or town. And we're, it's never mentioned specifically where the film is set, so we can just assume Seoul, Korea. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I was not clear on that either. One set of stairs descends to the Kim's family, which is, again, this dingy semi-basement apartment complex in, in a rough neighborhood. And then you have these staircases that lead to the ultra-wealthy Park family, who, again, lives at the top of this hill, like this mountain. But it's not just the exterior, but also the interior. Like, there's this reoccurring shot of them walking up the stairs in the uh park family home which again by the way just the house itself is gorgeous like i would live there for sure mm -hmm. um oh yeah so he actually calls it his stairway movie and i believe he refers to snowpiercer as his hallway movie um so the movie itself like you said like the house is a character in itself and and I, he's very influenced by alfred hitchcock you see it throughout the entire film i'm going to talk about it later on when i talk about my favorite scene and so they went you know they really put a lot of work into creating these houses but what i didn't what i didn't know what i didn't realize is that uh halfway through the film like about the hour i would say like an hour into the film there's this giant rainstorm and the Kim, uh, the, the home, the, the, the grungy semi-basement home of the Kim family is flooded. They actually built that set. It's a set. They built the set, the apartment complex, so they can purposely flood it. And I thought that was amazing. I had no idea they actually did that. 
That was a, a great scene too. Um, and I can kind of see how they did that because of the, 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 the placement of the camera, that couldn't be a real apartment just because of where they were getting their camera, uh, especially the bird's eye views of it and everything like that. Uh, you just wouldn't be able to do that except for on a, on a set. But it, it feels very lived in it. Whoever did the production design um, did a fantastic job of actually making that feel like a dingy basement apartment that, that isn't overdone but feels very lived in. Uh, I wanted to... I wanted to go back to the staircase thing because the, there obviously is a class metaphor in the staircase thing. You know, you're there are people who are on top, people who are on the bottom, and there's constantly uh, ascending and descending. And so they, he makes a point of constantly showing people going up the stairs because that's what this family is aspiring to do. And you see that more often than you see them going down the stairs. But when uh, certain things happen later on that, that, that where they might get caught right, at, right during this rainstorm, at the end of this rainstorm – it's down the stairs. It's like they failed in a way. Um, they were almost caught, and you know they're they're trying to they're trying to get out and get get back to their apartment. And there was a shot from there that that really stuck with me, and it felt like something out of Metropolis, you know, um, like the original Fritz Black Lang's and White, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah, because that also dealt with class struggle a lot, and you know the the poor people being below you know below the earth and the rich people living above in the in the bright city. And uh, going up and down is a big part of that. But there's a shot where they go down this this stairway outside. It's it's uh, as they're going home, and there's this rocky wall in the background. And I thought like that that was very much like how the the workers would be, you know, going into the pits in Metropolis. They're they're going back down to their grungy little where they belong, you know, below below their betters. It's interesting because the turning point of the film is signaled by the rainstorm, which sets a backdrop for the Kim's shocking discovery. Because when the downpour begins, suddenly, and there is foreshadowing earlier on about this like giant rainstorm with like, for example, like the water fight between Mr. Kim and the drunk man outside of his apartment. But, mm -hmm. you know, about a third way through the film, um, it's like parasite morphs into something else it, it becomes like a story about two homes but really three families and so you have like the kims the parks but has like the kims see themselves as has like being at the bottom of the food chain right but then we discover that there's actually someone living below them like to the point where you have this man who's the husband of the former housekeeper who they find a way to remove from the scenario moon's husband is living in the bunker beneath the house beneath the parks and it's for just years. like for, for four <laughs> years so it's like when we when the original housekeeper does show up and like we we discussed how it does sort of like turn into like a horror film and then she reveals this big huge plot twist like the first time I watched the movie because I didn't know exactly where the movie was headed right but I had no idea that there was actually someone else living below ground right like again going back to Jordan Peele's like us like there you have like the doppelganger families two families but here he sort of like takes it one step further by adding like a third family and sure they don't have like two kids so it's not necessarily a family of four. But, like, the idea of having the Kim family take over the park house only to discover that someone else is already living there could be seen as an uh, an analogy of colonists settling into, like, a land that's already, like, occupied. Because there's a lot of, like, mentions of, like, Native Americans and, again, class struggles. And so, like, it's, again, just very subtle. That's not really what the movie is about. But it's, like, every single scene in this movie, every single camera shot is it reveals something that he's like trying to like it either 
it either explores the theme of the movie, like the, the divide between the classes, like uh, the poor and the rich, or it has something to say about these characters. And it's one of those movies where, you know, like this movie landed on our list of the best movies of 2019, like over at a, over at our website, goombastomp.com. It was number one. And for about a week, there was like a three-way tie between The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. You know, finally, like a few people submitted their votes and Parasite took the top spot. I think it it beat out Terry Channel by like one vote. But the point is, is that with a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's film, like Tarantino's a writer. You know, he's first and foremost a writer and an excellent writer. He's a fantastic director, but he's a writer first and foremost. And I think with this movie, the director really uh, tells the story more through his visuals, his direction, as opposed to like the screenplay. I would be willing to bet that if you were to actually just take the script of Parasite and compare it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and just focus on the dialogue, like Parasite might be maybe 10, 15 pages long. Whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably <laughs> like 200 pages long. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's a lot of dialogue in this movie. It's not like it's a silent movie. There, there, there is a lot of talking. I think it would be it wouldn't be quite that disparate, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, the directing definitely plays a bigger part because he crafts his visuals. Even with the comedy early on, when the very first scene, when you see them you know, struggling to get Wi-Fi. Uh, I'm sure that, that was all very – it's very scripted. There's no question about that. But it's all relies on visuals and timing. And yeah. so you wouldn't get that on a page. It would not be nearly as entertaining reading about it as it is watching it. Whereas exactly. Tarantino stuff, I think you could read the screenplay for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and be just as, well, maybe not just as entertained, but you'd be entertained. You'd get the idea better than you would probably the screenplay for Parasite. Yeah, and that's, that's the, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. Like, it's a film that really comes through, like, it comes together via its visuals, its sound design. Like, it's 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 everything that makes this film special. It's not just one thing. Before we talk about our favorite scene, because we're getting to that point in the podcast where we have to talk about the best scene in the movie, I just want to quickly just talk about the cinematography, because it's not just that the movie looks sharp, and I love the colors, especially, like, the oranges and the yellows and... And I love the cinematography around the park, the park home, because, I mean, it's really beautifully shot. And like, you know, we're going to talk about the ending later on in the show, but it's interesting how the ending, which is like the most horrific uh, scene in the entire film, it's also the brightest scene. Like it takes place outside and yet it's the most horrific scene. But I love the way he plays with vertical spacing. And you have to give credit to his cinematographer, Hong Kai Pio. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's the same cinematographer who he's worked with in the past. He he worked on Mudder. He worked on Snowpiercer. I think... Um, actually, I think those are the only two movies he worked on. But anyways. But I just love the way he plays with vertical compositions to convey, again, the class divide. And it's not just like with the staircase, but it's also with the lighting. Uh, and the director has actually gone on record to say that they were very very picky on the lighting because for example when you're in the semi-basement home of the poor family the the kims um, there's very little sunlight that's piercing through the windows because it's a semi-basement apartment there's just enough that gives them enough hope that maybe one day they can actually have like afford a home that's above ground and you know what i mean they can look up into like the city streets but it's it nowhere compares to the amount of sunlight that 
that enters the home of the Park family because they have like this beautiful home on the mountain that oversees the entire city with these giant windows. I mean, it's gorgeous. And also, like, I like the fact that when we do have the rainstorm, like, the rain is basically flooding down the mountain into, like, the poor neighborhoods. and Because there's nowhere yeah. else for it to go. And so it's like even the rainstorm shows the difference between how it can affect the poor versus the rich. And I think he's a, uh, he's a director who, in his movies, he also, like, you know, we talk about the class divide. But he does address climate change. And you see it especially in a movie like Snowpiercer. I mean, that's what the whole entire film's about, right? Yeah, of course. And in this one, like, there's a, when the rain starts, there's a moment where, um, well, obviously they go home and the streets are flooded. It was very fascinating to watch, actually, how the streets are flooded and everybody's kind of getting their their good, you know, their their valuables out of their their apartments. Uh, and they're trying to they're trying to bucket, you know, water away from, out of their stores, convenience stores, and things like that. Um, but then later on, you, there's a, a, a line of dialogue from the wife who says who was talking to one of her friends about the rainstorm. And she's basically saying, Oh, thank God we needed the rain. Yeah. She says and, it's a blessing. <laughs> yeah. It's a blessing. Exactly. But for all these people, it completely ruined their lives. <laughs> it, it, but but that, that's what's so, that's what's so great. That scene that she mentioned, it's, it's not, I don't think it's the best scene, but it's, no. it's a really great scene. So she's basically like, she's riding in the back of their car. Um, Mr. Kim is driving her to the supermarket and he's, you know, he's had this horrendous night. His home was flooded. All of his, like, belongings were destroyed. He had to sleep at a gymnasium at some, like, school. Not a cot. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and she's in the backseat talking about, like, yeah, like you said, like, the rain was a blessing because it cleared out the pollution. Now they're going to have this, like, beautiful, sunny, bright day, which is great because they're having an outdoor birthday party for their son. And so that's what I mean. It's like the rainstorm... It, like here he focuses on an aspect of climate change and how it affects the rich and poor in different ways. And it has unequal repercussions for the rich and poor. In this case, it doesn't really hurt the Park family at all. For them, it's a blessing. So mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just like little things like that. Like I didn't really pick up on that on my first watch. It was only on my second watch I started like picking up on all these things because there's, so, there's just so much that he's trying to like address here. Um, and again, like this movie is not necessarily about climate change, but I think, you know, the, the, it's there. It's there. Like you said, like there is a scene where she specifically addresses the rainstorm and it, it shows how these two families, you know, like for them, like the rainstorm was either like a blessing or it was like a curse. It was like the worst thing that could have happened to them in their lifetime. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely more subtle than Snowpiercer, which was, you know, on the surface about climate change this is i think he's just sort of working in all sorts of facets of uh the class not class warfare but the class divide like you you described it um he's working in all kinds of facets of that there are many many ways in which the divide uh, affects different people and he's just kind of showing all that and kind of lampooning it too this is done with a lot of very very smart humor i think um for the most part and that to me is kind of a chuckle worthy scene because it just sort of shows the obliviousness, the, the bubble that these people live in. They have no idea that people's homes have been flooded. The, Mrs. Park has zero idea that that's happened when she when she's talking about the rain being a blessing. She, she just doesn't know anything that happens in the city, period. Um, I should also note that in that specific scene, she has her feet up on the headrest of the front seat 
So her foot is like directly next to Mr. Kim. So he's trying to drive his car and he can smell the stench from her feet, right? Like they, they turn, the camera turns to her and she starts like sniffing because there's this ongoing reoccurring mention of how the Kim family or specifically Mr. Kim smells different. Like he smells like quote unquote, like Mr. Park says, he smells like someone that lives or travels through the the subway the system. Subway. Yep. And, and, and that plays a, yeah. And that whole idea of like the stench, which we'll talk about towards the end of the podcast, when we talk about the end of the film, it plays like a huge uh, role in what happens in the climax. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Yeah, so we're, we're getting ready to talk about the best scene, uh, our favorite scenes from the movie. Um, but before we do that, let's hear another clip from Parasite. That was another clip from Parasite. So we're back and we're going to talk about our favorite scenes from the movie. Uh, Rick, you had sort of alluded to a couple of yours. You kind of danced around. I'd like to know what what was actually your favorite scene in this movie in Parasite? Okay, so it was really hard for me to choose, but not really. I just really, really liked the scene when Moon returns to the home and it turns into like a horror film, which we spoke about earlier on. But I think by far the best scene of the movie is when the family of four, the Kims, they come up with this master plan on how to remove Moon from the picture. Like, how do we find a way to get her fired so their mom, Mrs. Kim, can take her place and become the new housekeeper of the household? And I mentioned at the start of this podcast that the film really unfolds like a heist film. And mm-hmm. here you see the you see the family of four, the Kims, come up with this incredible plan on how they're going to sabotage this poor woman and get her fired. And like the thing about the director and the reason why I love him is because he's obsessed with rhythm and tempo. And you see this in Parasite where every single shot is perfectly calibrated. The editing, the camera work, the sound design, it's all perfectly aligned. And he really outdoes himself in the scene. Like... I think it's like probably one of his best scenes, if not the best scene in any one of his movies. It's amazing how every scene carries the viewer from one moment to the next moment with such incredible pacing. It's totally immersive. I I was reading up on it, and so in order to make the scene, the scene required 60 shots. The scene itself is just under five minutes long. And it's this beautiful montage that cuts back and forth between the past and present. You see how they conceive their plan, and it's this brilliant montage set to a classical score i love the music and again 60 incredible detailed shots stunning cinematography i love the slow motion all the way it cuts back and forth between them sitting in the pizza shop 
or them at home practicing their lines because the the son Kevin actually writes a screenplay for his dad to memorize because he has to act out this entire scene, right? <laughs> and coaches too, and coaches him in how to act. Like, Dad, your 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 emotional level is up here. I needed you to take it down here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, it's a masterclass of direction and editing. It's it's like a ballet. And on my second viewing. What I noticed was I noticed so many things I hadn't noticed the first time I watched the film, like subtle clues and foreshadowing that hints on how they're going to poison the housekeeper. Like, for example, when they put the hot sauce on the pizza and then mm -hmm. later they use the hot sauce to pretend uh, to, to, to um, simulate blood. Exactly. So I just love the way he intercuts the different conversations and the locations and the way he stitches them together to sort of like create this Frankenstein creation that is really like a single conversation. But in filming this single conversation like he does so much and he was for sure for sure influenced by alfred hitchcock when filming the scene and constructing it in the editing room and if you don't believe me there's actually a photograph of alfred hitchcock on the bookshelf so the camera pans and on the bookshelf in the park home if you look closely and I only saw this on my second viewing because my friend told me about it there is a photograph of alfred hitchcock so of course we have to also give credit to the editor, but I also read in an interview that the director edits most of his films. So like, he's just a genius. He's like, you know, he's, he, he's in on his cinematography. He has so much say on the production design, how he wants the sets to look. Of course, he oversees the actors, but he also pretty much is the editor for most of his movies. So anyhow, that is by far my favorite scene. I think the sequence is so controlled, so meticulously crafted. And um, it's so controlled and so beautifully crafted, just like the family's master plan to to get rid of this the original housekeeper. But as we quickly learn when watching a movie, there's no bulletproof plan. As the dad says to his son when they're sleeping over in the gym, he's like, the best plan is no plan because any plan is going to go wrong, whereas no plan will never go wrong. Like, I just <laughs> love that scene. Yeah, I I think it's like it's basically like an Ocean's Eleven thing, but with actual emotional impact to it. That's what makes that it feels does feel like a heist because they're they are they are scamming, they're scheming and scamming, and it's meticulously plotted out. And um, but it's got actual like emotional stakes here, and that's what I like about it. You know, more than something which like Ocean's, which is just sort of fluff. This is it feels like that, but there's actual stakes to it. Um, so my favorite scene from this movie was, uh, it, I, while I did like aspects of um, the housekeeper Moon coming home, again, I did have some problems with the scripting there. And I, I had a, a few problems with her husband as well. But um, that aside, and, and I'm curious to actually see this for a second time because I do want to see this again. I'm, I wonder if some of those problems might disappear now that I know more of what's going on now that I know what the plot is and I don't have to make those those uh, leaps anymore. Um, I wonder if I'll, I'll view it a little bit differently because I, I really do like, especially the first half of this movie, I really, really like. Um, but that, my favorite scene comes from the second half of the movie and it is the rainstorm. I love the scene when they descend those stairs in the rain, when they're walking home in the rain, um, going back to their, their, little, their little lair where these creatures crawled out of. Uh, and it's the saddest, uh, you know, scene in the movie, but also one of the funniest scenes in the movie to me. Uh, it was one of my laugh out loud, uh, moments, 
So it's sad, obviously, when the father goes in and all their stuff, even the meager things that they have, they're all getting ruined, destroyed. And he's trying to save whatever's left, like his wife's medal um, from the Olympics, I presume. And um, he's trying to just whatever few things they have that are of any value, he's trying to get out. And he just sees his house, the place that he's lived. And maybe it wasn't the best home, but it did provide them shelter and you know they were a family there he's seeing it all just be completely destroyed which is kind of a metaphor for what's about to happen to his family anyway um but uh, the laugh out loud moment uh comes from his sister when she she gets her cigarettes out of the hiding spot she has in the ceiling and just sits on top of the toilet because the toilet is is also everything's flooding so the sewers are flooding as well which is backing up everybody's plumbing and the toilet kind of explodes and she sort of sits on top of the lid and smokes a cigarette while the water is rising in the bathroom. And I don't know why, but I laughed out loud at that. I I just thought that was the perfect summation of these people's situation. And <laughs> it was so funny. She's just sitting there calmly smoking as the water's rising. <laughs> it was great. Of course, in their household, the toilet is like the highest you can go. Like it's like it's elevated above everything else. And yeah. it's a toilet. Like yeah, and also like in that scene, Kevin he saves the rock and i find the rock, the whole premise like the whole concept of the rock i find hilarious and also reminds me of like uncut gems my second favorite film of 2019 but like at one point during the festivities and we're going to talk about the ending soon kevin decides to take the rock which he rescues from the flood the only thing he takes with him the rock given to him by his cooler wealthier friend at the beginning of the movie and he takes the rock the scholar stone i think they call it and he takes it to the basement because he's going to he's going to offer like sort of like it's going to be like a peace offering to Moon's husband, who they pretty much nearly killed, uh, who's yes. like tied up, locked away in the basement in the bunker. And, you know, it, this is a rock that is the embodiment of Kevin's greed or the family's greed, I should say. It, it's a rock that's meant to bring wealth. That was why it was right. given to them. So it was kind of it was supposed to be a good luck charm. It was supposed to be. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what's ironic about it, because at, at first the rock is symbolized as hope and something magical. And like you said, it's going to bring the family wealth. And in the end, he's attacked by Moon's husband, who uses the rock and hits him across the head several times. Several blows to the head, which basically leaves him bleeding and left for dead on the on the kitchen floor. And I, I just found that so ironic. And that's the one thing he saves during the storm. <laughs> I know. I know. And that rock really meant something to him. Uh, <laughs> what did he always say? He always said it's metaphorical. Uh, he said that he kept misusing the word, which is funny because the Kims aren't very educated. So he kept saying that everything was metaphorical. Um, but <laughs> he saved the rock because it really did mean something to him. And the way some of those things tie in at the end is, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, he does a, you know, he does a great, the director does a great job of setting these things up perfectly so that there are payoffs for nearly every single one, like the walkie talkies. As soon as I saw the walkie talkies and they did a little click in the over, it's a little cute thing, but I thought this is going to pay off at some point. And he does it in a satisfying way, not in a way where I'm just waiting for it to pay off, but where it surprisingly sort of pays off. Um, but he, he ties up his loose ends that way in the writing, and I really enjoyed that, that he doesn't leave anything. And The Rock is one of those things. It was so prominent at the beginning, it had to have its own resolution, and he finds a very surprising way to do that. 
I guess this would be a, a good time to just speak about the ending of the film before we get to our five questions. What's so tragic, oh, and there's so many things that are tragic about this film, but we never get to see Moon actually die on screen. She's kicked down the stairs, she suffers mm-hmm. a concussion, but we never actually get to see her die. And then finally, when her husband escapes and he, he you know, bashes Kevin over the head with the rock and his face is covered in blood and he walks outside for the first time he's outside in four years it's been four years since he stepped outside of a house and it's this bright beautiful sunny day like i said the brightest scene in the entire film and he's standing there with like this face like like blood dripping down his face and it looks like face paint yeah and a knife but it looks like he looks like he's in costume because the theme of this birthday party for the son is it's like a native american birthday party theme right to the point where like they're dressed up like native americans and so nobody really notices him because they're so fixated on like the the the, the cake that's supposed to help the son overcome his trauma from seeing the ghost which wasn't really the ghost it was moon's dad moon's who, husband moon, yeah. sorry moon's husband yeah and and i and i and i think that's why like that section of the film that you sort of like have um uh, you know some some problems with and i i really love like when she returns back to the house um and sorry not was well, not it's not really that scene it's it's more later on when we hear the story like miss mrs park is telling a story about how her son basically one night he snuck down snuck downstairs into the kitchen was eating ice cream or cake or whatever it was and he saw this ghost appear out of nowhere and and that's the thing about her husband is that he's not dead but specifically in that you know about an hour into the film like it does become sort of like a horror film and like a ghost film because it's not just with the lights flickering which is a you know a classic motif of a ghost tale but it's also mm-hmm. the fact that he's like he's not physically dead but he's dead in the sense that he's socially dead like you know for 4 years this guy's been nowhere he's nowhere to be found because he's hiding from the um the loan he's sharks hiding... yeah loan sharks yep right and so so like i just like thematically i like the way they do make him like an actual ghost and then mm-hmm. In this final scene, he just comes out of nowhere with his blood dripping on his face. And he's holding this, like, he's wielding a knife. Like, he's like Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. And nobody notices. And it's it's so tragic because, like, the first thing he does is he seeks revenge on the Kim family. Because he actually adores Mr. Park. Which is so bizarre. Because he lives in his basement for four years. But he looks up to him. Like, he he worships the man. And it's so tragic because it shows the lack of solidarity between the members of the working class, like the poor families, the two poor families actually turn against each other instead of like, you know, say working together, helping each other out. No, it, it does, there's no solidarity whatsoever. And so Parasite looks at class warfare, but it isn't always as clean and cut as the poor versus the rich. In fact, a good chunk of the film is really the poor versus the poor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're kind of fighting over who gets to take the scraps from the rich. And that's kind of the, the, I think there's a sly dig when they're talking about Moon's husband looking up to Mr. Park. It's sort of a sly dig at people who sort of, who who do idolize the wealthy and want to be like them, but also think that, oh, the wealthy are kind of providing for us. Uh, And in reality, Mr. Park has no idea who this person is and couldn't care less about who he is or what it's been like. But he still, for some reason, he, he says that, like, he has provided me with, you know, he provides me with food and with shelter and everything like that. Well, Mr. Park doesn't care about you. He doesn't even know about you. 
Like you, you would, you, <laughs> so it is kind of, it, it's a funny little thing. And yeah, that ending scene is um, when he goes on, he's basically not out there. You think he's kind of out there maybe to slaughter all the rich people. That's not the case. He's out there just to kill his competitors, the, the, the Kims that he's out to kill the same class as himself. But in the opening scene the Kim family, their, their, um, their job is basically uh, building these like pizza boxes. Right. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the pizza shop, who's this young manager, she shows up at their doorstep and she's like not happy because according to her, one out of every four boxes wasn't uh, properly constructed. And so she wants a doctor pay 10%. And so again, you have this like, you know, let's face it, the manager of the pizza shop isn't necessarily wealthy, but yet she is, she's going so far as to knock off 10% from the paycheck, which they desperately need the money. And then later on in the movie, when they're actually making money because they're working for the parks who are a wealthy family and pay them well, they return to the pizza shop. And yeah, so, to eat there. <laughs> yeah, to eat there. It's so now they're customers. Like, exactly. So it's like, you know, there's like a reverse there. Um, but yeah, like this is like, I mean, there's so many great things about the movie. And I, I think I think the last thing I'll say is that like, you know, the film should really be called Parasites, plural, because like all of these families are leeching off of one another. Like, you know, like, of course, you got the Kims. And, and also, I, I want to say that what I do like about the film is there's no heroes, there's no villains, there's no... Like, everyone is sort of, like, in the wrong, you know? And, like, even though the Kims are, like, the family we follow, like, Kevin's arguably the protagonist of the film, like, they do terrible things to get mm-hmm. these jobs, right? Yep. I mean, but the part And to keep them, and especially to keep those jobs. What they do to Moon and her husband, they're, they're willing to, to go pretty far in order to keep what they've got, the scraps yeah. that they've got. But the original family is no different. I mean, they're leeching off of the parks. But the parks themselves, like the wealthy family, they are taking advantage of the workers. Like, and like what I mean by that is like, like yeah, they offered them a job and they paid them and they paid them on time and they probably pay them very well. But they really don't care about these people at all. And except with one exception, though, perhaps. And I found this to be a curious exception. Uh, Dahai saves Kevin's life. She did not have to do that. And in the end, when, when Kevin is lying bleeding, oh, like, right. she could have yeah. easily, there could have been a scene where she just runs away with the rest of her family and only cares about themselves. But she carries him out herself. Like, so she really did care about him. You're right. And I think, I think there's one line in the movie where Mrs. Kim says that she really likes her and she's different and she's special and she's not like whatever, like the other people. Um, yeah, you're right. But P- Parasite doesn't portray the working class in a positive, sentimental light. But it also doesn't paint the rich as evil, which a lot of movies would do. It's not it's not black and white. You know, the shades are gray everywhere. So no heroes, no villains. And Parasite, everyone's the monsters. And and like like in real life, like Parasites come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And I don't know, just something about the title. Like, I don't know if it was just um, maybe purposely they wanted the title to be that. <laughs> maybe it was just like a translation thing. I just thought it would have been better if they called it Parasites. But yeah, it, 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 it works, though, on many levels. So, all right, basically, we're going to we're going to end every podcast with uh, with some questions uh, to sort of design, you know, how just sort of point out uh, outstanding elements of each film and uh, maybe just sort of sum up what we think about it. So. First of all, Rick, does this movie stand the test of time, or will it stand the test of time, do you think? 
Will it stand a test of time? I'm going to say 100% yes. I've actually watched it twice. And the reason why I say yes is because, I mean, apart from the fact that, like, you know, we just spent, like, an hour talking about why the movie is so well made. Uh, I liked it better on my second viewing. And I was, like, when I first watched the movie, I'm like, I'm like I was actually, when I had that conversation with Simon, I was worried that if I watched a movie a second time, especially so soon, I wouldn't enjoy it so much. But that's actually not the case. I actually enjoyed it a lot more. So I'm going to 100% say, yes, it's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, I think there's so much craft in here. Like, even despite some of my problems with the screenplay, and they're, they're, they're problems that I'm, I'm going to say, like, you know, I probably wouldn't have put this as my best film of the year, but it would have been, it would have made my list. Um, I am curious to go back and see it again. And that, that's always a good sign, by the way. Like, I want to see this movie again, especially because I had such a strong reaction to the first half of it, especially to see if now that I know what's coming in the second half, that, um, that it won't be it won't be as much of an issue for me, and I can actually sort of look at all the little details in the second half because there's a lot going on in that second half as well. I think this is also going to hold up really, really well because there's just so much craft in it, and the timing uh, on his of his satire, like he's so good at that. I was constantly marveling at how good his timing was. Um, for and you talked about the pacing and how he's really into rhythm. I mean, it's pretty obvious that this guy knows timing very, very well. Um, so I, I think I think you know this will definitely hold up just because of the, the pure craft that's involved. Um, all right, so who do you think is the MVP of this? I think I may know the answer to this question, uh, but uh, who is the MVP of this film? The director and. You know, like, again, we praise the cinematography and the editing and the composer because the music's fantastic. And, of course, the cast, the entire cast does an incredible job. All the performances across the board are uniformly strong. But I really like the director. And I'm just going to, like, pinpoint the very, very final two shots of the film. Because at the very end of the film, we, we learn that the dad who goes missing actually returned to the home and went to go hide and live out in the bunker and so the penultimate shot of the film sees the dad and the son kevin hugging in the bright green lawn of the park home so basically what happens is we have a voiceover the very first and only voiceover of the entire film and it's like this dreamlike sequence where kevin has this plan right and remember plans has Kevin's dad, Mr. Kim says, never work out. They always fall apart. But he has a plan that he's going to go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a real high paying job, become wealthy and buy the house. So therefore, he can free his dad. And he says that once I buy the house, all you have to do is walk upstairs and walk out. And so you have this like fantasy, like this dream. And it's Kevin envisioning this future that he hopes to one day have and this goal to accomplish but that never happens and that's why i was like confused that people were confused about the ending of the movie because there's nothing to be confused about because that is the penultimate shot but the final shot is reminiscent of the very first shot it's the exact same shot it it's back to the home the semi-basement rundown home in the poor neighborhood where kevin still lives he's still Word. poor and socks are drying from something that's hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's a really bleak, depressing ending. There's no positivity to take away from it. 
And I think I think uh, uh, Bung Jung Ho makes that very clear too. That's why I don't. If, if somebody's confused by an ending, I'm confused how they got confused. I think he's very clear in everything here, even in the amb- ambiguous parts of this movie. They're not uh, they're not done in some sort of <clears throat> annoyingly teasing way. I, there are things that are left vague, but they're they're all very clear cut vague. If that makes any sense, like I you can ponder them and you know what to ponder. That that's the thing. You, you're not left stuck wondering what happened. Um, that's not the case here in the end. Like everybody knows, that's his dream, and it's up to you to figure out whether or not that's ever going to happen. Obviously, the movie suggests that this is just simply a pipe dream, and and he's, his dream's never going to come to fruition. But it doesn't definitively say that it'll never happen. So you can choose to take the positive uh, outlook, I guess. Uh, but it For part, sure. all right, it's all very clear, though. But, but Bong could have ended the film on a note of a dreamlike ambiguity, mm-hmm. and, but he didn't. And that's why I appreciate that. Like, I respect him because, like, it's like the director's worldview comes through most clearly in the final shot, in the ending. It's clear. It's bleak. It's unrelenting. And the idea of the Kims, the family, becoming wealthy is both a fantasy and a prison for the Kim family. It's something they'll chase, but they'll never achieve. And so yeah. it's, it's that idea of... Um, uh, it's it's like it's like the idea like it's like hope like hope itself is sort of like um their worst enemy like they have this hope that they're going to accomplish these things which i guess is kind of good to have hope at the same time like it could also work against you absolutely well regardless bong is also my mvp of this i mean i think he is the one leading the charge here everybody did a great job all the actors do a fantastic job and of course like you said the cinematography is fantastic as well but uh, I think this is all spearheaded by this is definitely the vision of, of uh, one person. And uh, I think he's definitely got to be the MVP. Now, however, if you could change just one thing about this movie, what would you change, Rick? I would change a penultimate shot because it's not really a shot. It's a sequence because I think uh, it confuses viewers. But it's not necessarily because it confuses viewers because I shouldn't really care if people are confused. But I think it's a little too long. Like For example... There is the voiceover, and it's this letter, which is, you know, it's about, what, 500 words, maybe longer? It's a good three, four minutes. It's a long letter. It's a long letter, and I can't imagine someone doing Morse code for that long. (laughs) I was thinking that, too. Yeah, hoping that someone, hoping that his son's actually going to, like, go to the mountaintop and stare at the house and sit there and, like, realize he's doing Morse code and translate this entire, like, letter, which, again, is, like, it's, like, the speech itself is, like, four minutes long. It's just too long. Yeah. Um, I would have made that specific portion of the uh, film, like that sequence, a little shorter and ma- basically make the message shorter. Um, I-, I-, I like the idea of him returning to the house and now he is the one living in the basement. Like, I like that. I like how he becomes the new Mrs. Moon's husband. I don't know his name. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just I just thought it was too long. Okay. I, I can actually see that. I did. I did have a similar issue with that. Uh, that it was too long, especially for the Morse code thing, because you'd have to rely on somebody. It's. It's not like everything in this movie is realistic, but there are certain things that can take you out of it for a second, and I think that's one of them. Where you're thinking, "Well, God, what are the odds that this person is going to actually get here at the beginning of this message, and understand what any of it means?" You know, more likely somebody just comes through. You know, the sun would even if he did come up there, he comes halfway through the message, and he doesn't really quite understand. <laughs> But uh, for me, the one thing I would change, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I really think that the um, the scene where Moon comes back to the house needed to be different. She should not have been let 
into the house by Chung Sook. That was to me a mistake that took me out of that sequence um, because I did not feel that a human being would behave that way. I didn't feel a human being in their situation where they were threatened would actually let the enemy in the door. Um, you know, not it's not her actual enemy at the time, but that's kind of what it was. Um, she she was almost allowing herself to be caught. And it was just a little too, I, I would have enjoyed to see, I, I think he could have done some very, very simple things that, that like giving the housekeeper an old key and she just walks in, you know, not knowing that there's anybody there. Um, and then, then all of a sudden that, that sequence changes for me because it, uh, the threat, for one thing, the threat is more real because they're being attacked by an outside force as opposed to them doing it to themselves, which I get is that's, that's also an interesting concept to explore. I just didn't believe it in that moment. And so there were it just took me out of the movie for a little bit. And the movie had to work to get me back into it. And thankfully, the flood came along, my favorite scene. Um, and by the time that came along, I was back into it. But I wish that he had just changed that one moment and I probably wouldn't have been drawn out in that moment. That's the only thing I would change. All right. Is this a movie you're going to, I think we answered this question already, but is this a movie you can watch over and over or you, well, you already have seen it more than once. Yeah. So um, the answer is yes, but here's the thing. So on my second viewing, just to prove why you should watch it more than once, there's things that I didn't notice, which I mentioned several times on this podcast. Like, for example, did you notice, like maybe you did, maybe it was just me in the first viewing. I didn't realize this, but Mr. Park, right? Mm -hmm. um, everyone in this film, like I said, is like a parasite, but Mr. Park himself is a parasite of the capitalist system and he's reaping millions of dollars and, you know, he feeds off like the poor and so on and so forth. But the thing about him is what's so ironic about Mr. Park is how he runs an augmented reality video game sort of like business. Did you notice this? It's called Another Brick is the name of his business. No, so I like, didn't actually. Yeah, so it's like it, it deals with augmented reality. So it's almost like every character in the movie has both a real and fake persona. Like it deals with like this idea of like reality and like how it was, I'm not trying to phrase this properly. Like it's like they don't they live in a different reality. You know, like like Mrs. Park, for example. It's like she doesn't really see what's happening around her and what's happening to the people like the poor people that live in the same city as her. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's this disconnect from mm -hmm. reality in every single way from every single one of these characters. And I only picked up on that in the in the second uh, viewing because when Mr. Kim goes for the job interview, he has to go to his office and that's mm -hmm. when you see him playing around with the augmented reality, like whatever it is, like headsets or something yeah i was so focused on mr kim that i knew it was tech i just didn't really uh pay attention as to what it was so i was so focused on watching mr kim that i didn't <laughs> and uh <laughs> one more thing i noticed and i don't know if you noticed this uh, again on my second viewing is i think it's at the beginning of the movie like the opening scene when they're trying to get wi-fi they make mention of this coffee shop owner and how the coffee shop closed down because the guy didn't have money and whatever blah 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 and it turns out that the owners of that shop that closed down is Moon and her husband, who now lives underground in the park's, like, bunker. And those are the people that the loan sharks are chasing. There's an actual mention of it at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I you know, I did not connect those two things. But I do remember Mr. Kim talking about all of his failed businesses. And then that also happened with Moon's husband, where he talks about his failed business. Um and I thought that that was kind of similar because they, they are uh, funny because they had similar failed businesses. <laughs> you know, they both tried to start up similar types of business and both of them failed. a cake shop. Both of them tried to do cake shops and they both failed. Um, 
and yeah, so I, I I didn't notice that it was the actual coffee shop or you know whatever that they're talking about at the beginning of the movie. But that's kind of I, there's I, no I like proof. It, yeah, there's no proof, but it's I mean it's got to be right. It's alluded to. It? If, yeah. if they're talking about one that just closed, it's probably alluded to. Although well, not just closed, it was a few years ago. Or a few years say. ago. I yeah. mean, of course, because it would have to be because Moon's husband's been underground for four years. Um, yeah, little details like that. And this is definitely a movie. Uh, I'm not one and done with this. I'm definitely going to see it again. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it holds up and what little things I catch, you know, this time now that I'm more prepared for it. Uh, just like, like, I want to see the Hitchcock thing now that you've warned me about that. Um, yeah, I want to catch all the little details because there are, this is definitely a rich movie. Everything seems very, very carefully planned. And you're never going to be able to take it all in in one viewing. Not that it's, you know, I'm, I don't, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's not overly stimulating like in that way. <clears throat> but um, it's it's clearly carefully composed, and so I want to be able to, to see the edges of the frame. Now that I kind of understand the story and I've seen the story once, I want to be able to look look outside that a little bit. So definitely not one done for me. Um, so who would you recommend this movie to then? Question number five: Who would I recommend the movie to? I would recommend the movie to anybody who likes movies. Just about anybody. Like I think this film has a universal appeal. Um, like I said, there's at times it's like a heist film and it's like a horror film, but it's not really like a horror film where there's like a lot of blood and guts or gore. So you don't have to worry about that. But it's like a thriller. It's like a dark comedy. I think just about everyone will like this movie so much as you like movies. Uh, you might not think it's like the best movie of the year, like some of us do, but I think you could enjoy it a film. But it does have subtitles, clearly, because it's a South Korean film. But um, that might be an issue for some people. But I really think that this movie is, um, you know, it won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. It won a Golden Globe. I think it's going to win the Oscar. I think it's a movie that everybody likes. And I think that's why it has the best shot of winning the Oscar this year. Because it's just like everyone I know loves this movie. Yeah, I think especially the first half is going to appeal to pretty much everybody. Because most people can relate to this family on some level. And this could be seen as kind of a fantasy. You know, they are moving on up, so to speak. Um, literally and figuratively. And uh, I think everybody can relate to that. Whether or not they'll they'll dig the, the ending, I can't say. But I would recommend that everybody at least give this a try. Uh, there's some people who might not uh, care for the the violent end and may not think that it fits with the rest of the movie. Uh, I think it does, but it's it is kind of it's a tone. There's a tonal shift that happens halfway through the movie and that leads to that violent conclusion that some people might not be able to follow along. Uh, but I would want them to give this a try. I would recommend this to pretty much anyone. You, like you said, uh, I, anyone who watches movies, I would recommend this to. It's a great movie to give a try and sort of, if you haven't seen something like this, sort of expand your horizons a little bit um, and expand your taste a little bit. Uh, this is a good movie for that because I think it it eases you in to its darker subject matter really, really nicely with a, with more humor, a more humorous beginning and a universally humorous beginning this is not humor that that some people are going to get this isn't you know there's no click group here that's getting this humor this is universal humor so very smart in, in that regard and i think most people should give this a shot the um the last question every week we're going to ask six questions at the end of the show the last question is tricky so the last question for our podcast is does the movie have three great scenes and there's a reason why we ask this question yeah, so uh, director Howard Hawks once said that a good movie is comprised of three good scenes and no bad ones. 
Now, was it three good or three great? Because my quote from Jean-Luc Godard said three great scenes. Yeah, I I believe, I mean, Hawks obviously has probably been misquoted on this, but um, uh, three good scenes. I looked up this quote, actually, (laughs) just to to clarify. So it is a a good movie has three good scenes and no bad scenes. Now, when he says a good movie, I I do believe that he does mean a great movie. And I I think when he's referring to good scenes, I, I think he is also referring to great scenes in a way standout moments yeah 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 so here's the thing i'm gonna say yes and and the reason why i'm gonna say yes is we you know you spoke about the scene in which they descend from the hilltop to their home which is being flooded the rainstorm sequence brilliant i spoke about the scene in which they uh come up come up with the plan in order to remove moon the original housekeeper from from the situation to get her fired and i love the brilliant montage sequence right now then we have the scene in which moon returns to the park home midway through the film and that is when that's the turning point of the film that is when we discover that her husband's living underground now granted they could have solved your issue with the film by say for example like the door was left wide open and she walked in or she had a spare key and was able to enter the home. So it's a little bit more plausible and believable. But if you set aside that one nitpick, I still think that that is a great scene. And I think it's a great scene because again, like I said earlier on, her husband who's living underground, like they portray him like a ghost and that whole entire sequence, that's when it sort of like turns into like a horror film, like a ghost story because he himself is like a ghost. And, and that is when later on we see the flickering of the lights and we see like uh, his shadowy sort of like figure. Uh, um, it's, he like, when he walks up the staircase and the young boy sees him for the first time, it sets up him as a character. So I, re- I would say that that is still a good scene. So if a great movie needs three great scenes, like we're talking about, like great, 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 right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I it's I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say yes. I would now. I wouldn't go so far as to call um, the scene where where Moon comes back as a bad scene. Like my little nit doesn't utterly ruin the scene. It lessens it for me to the point where I was taken out of that scene enough, and I had to work myself back into it. So I'm going to have to count that one against the movie, <laughs> though I wouldn't count it. I wouldn't uh, say it was a bad scene. It is in all other aspects. When I look at it, you know, look back on it in all other aspects, it is very well done. But I would I would argue that the very first scene in the movie is a great scene. I loved the Wi-Fi scene. I think that Wi-Fi scene and the opening scene explaining who this family is, is absolutely fantastic. I can't uh, – it sets this the, the family and the situation up so well in such a humorous way that uh, I would argue that that, that is the, the third great scene. Um, that would be my choice anyway. So, yeah, I don't think uh, – thinking back, I can't think of a, a bad scene in this movie, something that I would have cut out. There's not a single scene that I would have cut out. I would have just changed that one bit of plotting to make that, that, that uh, you know, Moon's Return – better i think it would work better and i I think it would uh, be less jarring for people they wouldn't have to to make a leap in logic that i think they do right now um but that's not a bad scene i i just can't i can't think it's a bad one yeah there's no such thing as a perfect movie um there could be a misstep a mistake whatever a continuity or whatever it is what have you in a scene but i think if you construct an entire scene and it's just poorly constructed there's like a problem there right Uh, Mm -hmm. this movie does not have that problem 
no, no, not at all. I can't think of a single scene that I would cut out because it was just a complete error or anything like that. This is pretty a lean movie, even though it's, it's over two hours. Um, it still feels like a pretty lean, concise movie. Yeah. So I think that's, this definitely fits those parameters. Um, and it is a great movie. There's no question it belongs on the, it's one of the year's best for sure. All right. With that, uh, that's our discussion on parasite. Um, Next week we'll be back with Tremors, an, an older movie. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bounce back and forth a little bit here. Um, Parasite was sort of an, maybe an outlier that it was so new, but we will occasionally do new movies if we feel like it. I, I love how we're gonna follow up Parasite with Tremors. Like that, <laughs> that's a great that's a great pick. I'm just saying that was your pick. That's my pick. Yes, Tremors is having a, its anniversary. I believe it is a 30th anniversary. And uh, so we're going to we're gonna take a look back on that movie. Uh, but before we go, uh, we just want to remind you to take a look at You can find us on Goombastop.com. And, of course, go there for there's a ton of film coverage in general there. Obviously, we, we not only enjoy talking about movies, but we've written about so many movies. Um, so, yeah, check out SwordCinema.com or um, Goombastop.com and you can find our film section there. Also, uh, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, that would be an outstanding way to help us share this podcast and grow it a little bit, grow an audience um, and have more people join this discussion of some of these great movies that we're going to be, we're going to be covering over the, the coming weeks and months and years, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, please leave us a rating, leave us comments, um, leave us a comment on the website as well. If you want, you can find me on Twitter at sorted cinema. Um, and uh, Rick, where can we find you on Twitter? I handled the official Twitter account for Goomba Stomp, and I think that's about it. But yeah, like our show would be available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher, and you name it. But you can find all the links over at GoombaStomp.com. All right, that should do it. We will see you guys uh, next week. <laughs> I'm deadly serious. <laughs>